Welcome to Local and Thriving. I am your friendly neighborhood host, Bree Crow, and you're tuning in to season two of the show where we're highlighting the Dallas community. I'm passionate about empowering an inclusive economy, and it all starts locally, right? These are the conversations with people you need to know, sharing stories to learn from, and talking about resources to leverage. Check out more about the show at localandthriving.com. Find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. And hey, while you're listening, go plug in to our private Facebook group. You can find me on social at recrow.co. I'd love to hear from you, but I won't keep you waiting. Well, let's get into it. Mishti Deb, who's a partner in her law firm, Lasusa and Deb PLLC, and she's an adjunct professor with the UNT College of Law. She's an attorney who truly cares about education, serving the community, and empowering their clients. She's worked for the Small Business Administration, and today their firm works with startups, small and medium-sized businesses, as well as nonprofits. We discuss the latest loan and relief programs like the CARES Act that offers the PPP loans, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, and the Shuttered Venue Act, among others. We also talked about the fraud and unethical behavior to be aware of and what it means to have a new Special Inspector General for Pandemic Relief. Okay, y'all, we are here with the Mishti, and I'm so grateful for her taking the time to join us today because as we were just talking about before I hit record, she's not only having to do her job, but read all of the documentation, read all of the news, and her job is more than ever a moving target. And I I don't know about you, but I don't love a moving target. And I'm sure that's how all of us feel that we've been operating, especially for the last year. And so mm-hmm. I am super grateful to her joining because when I think about how we got connected, Mishti, it has probably been at least six years, do you think? Something um, like that, yeah. If not longer, we've had many a lunch at Cafe Brazil. We've had, um, you know, we've met up so many different times initially through our work with her work with Sharks and Heels and also with my work in women in technology initiatives. And I think we've always aligned our passions around supporting women in their careers, but also in their businesses. So Mishti is a partner in La Susa and Deb PLLC. She is an attorney that she's worked with the Small Business Association. She's worked with corporate um, entities, but also with startups and um, in Uh, intellectual property and patent, um, which I'm sure a lot of people are always interested in what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to actually getting a patent. She's an adjunct professor and has been um, for multiple different colleges and, and for many years. And as of recently, especially, I'm sure that there's been a lot that has pivoted in terms of addressing the immediate market needs. And so, um, thank you so much, Misty, for taking the time to be able to talk with us today. Thank you. Yes. Very gen- that was a very generous introduction. Anyone well, that knows this, I really cringe <laughs> I didn't even mention all the other probable acc- accolades and, and all the news that you've been on. You've been on Fox 4 News several different times over the last year um, where people are looking forward to your perspective on the latest changes that are happening. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious of first things first. When you started your own law firm, you know, is it an easy decision to start your own firm rather than work for one since A, you kind of already know the business legalities and 
and then also working for someone else will, from what I understand, still require you to bring in your own business and your own clients, right? So you might as well do it on your own. Like what was your catalyst in deciding to start your own firm? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I started the firm with my partner, Rainey, and we met working for the Small Business Administration in disaster relief uh, lending during Hurricane Katrina. Um, And then we kind of went our separate ways. And I worked for a private law firm, a very traditional style law firm. And then I worked in-house. And, um, you know, When I was working in-house, I was working for a financial uh, services company, and I really, really didn't like it, like what I was doing. It didn't have the same kind of uh, passion and heart behind it as working for the SBA and doing disaster relief lending had. It didn't have sort of the structure of the law firm. And at the time that I met Rainey, you know, she was also sort of pivoting in her firm and it just kind of made sense. Um, We were both kind of frustrated with the way that we were practicing law and we wanted to kind of change things. The nice thing about having your own firm is you can be uh, much more judicious in how you, what clients you take, what clients you don't take, what kind of work you're doing, what kind of schedule you're setting. Um, And anyone that's worked for a big firm, even if it's not a law firm, like a big consulting company, they're very much driven by hourly rate. And there's a lot of pressure to do more work than is than is necessary even for the client. And I think it's actually a disservice to the client as well, um, because you know, especially with our clients, a lot of them are either individuals or small businesses or nonprofits. They're very budget conscious, and they don't need me to do more, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, I just wanted I just wanted to have more client interface and more client contact than I was having at um, my previous position. So it made sense. And that's kind of kind of how we decided to start our own firm. And um, I've, I've been happy with that decision. Yeah. Well, and it's been over 10 years now, which obviously, um, you know, champions and, and or I should say trumps any of the statistics around, um, you know, women in business. You know, I think I've heard because I'm a little over two years into it. And the marker was always a matter of sustaining your business for for two years, you know, and, and having that. So, you know, well over 10 years, you obviously have really healthy legs to stand on. What we've talked about before also was that you've pivoted and you can be more judicious about picking your clients. I'm curious about, let's get into it. How has business changed for you over the last year? Yeah, I mean, with the pandemic, I think everybody has experienced some sort of change at their workplace, whether it's just working remotely and not seeing people as much. Um, When the pandemic started, one of the things that we noticed is a lot of other firms around us didn't know what to do. A lot of them shut down. A lot of them were struggling. You know, in the beginning stages of the pandemic, certainly people's front of mind wasn't, let me call my attorney, right? Um, But that really changed. Um, Pretty early on, uh, a friend of mine called me and said, you know, there are people out there that are helping uh, individuals and businesses get SBA loans. And I know that you and Rainey actually worked at the SBA and some of the people who are out there offering this service don't have any experience. So you should be doing that. And we kind of sent out an email and just very quickly, 
you know, got called on to Fox News and then had more phone calls than we knew what to, to do with. So definitely the beginning, you know, we were trying to figure out how best to serve the community because we were just grateful to have something to do because all of the courts were closed, everything had just stopped. And so we very much looked at it as this is our chance to make a difference uh, in our community and, and help people out. And then as the pandemic has progressed, it's really interesting to see how it's affected our other areas of business. So um, after a couple of months of pandemic, we've seen an uptick in uh, divorces. <laughs> so, you know, having to, I guess, spend close quarter with your spouse uh, maybe makes you decide that you don't want to do that anymore. So we've seen uh, more people interested in wills and estates as they become a concern for the health and security of their family and what might happen to their children or to their parents when they're no longer around. Uh, with At the same time during the pandemic, we saw lots of dramatic changes in immigration law too. So we've also seen uh, increased uh, interest in immigration, both as restrictions were kind of tightened uh, in 2020 and then now how restrictions have been loosened early 2021. So it's almost affected every single area of our business, not to mention how we do business, but I, I think most people it's affected how they do business. Yeah. I mean, when you were going through each of those, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, as a law firm, I, I just, I think I've forgotten how each of those different areas, I mean, um, so much of that is there's just a lot of tension and then all of a sudden people start thinking about wait a second what if what can i do to cross my t's and dot my i's like you were mentioning you know especially if you've built a legacy for your family or something like that wanting to make sure that that is taken care of um should an event happen so i mean it's been disaster planning is definitely i feel like the the most broad term of uh, not only disaster recovery, but disaster planning. Um, people are taking it maybe a little bit more seriously beyond just like you mentioned, you started with this doing it for a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We started so. doing it in this, started in this business working on a hurricane you know, 15, 15 years ago. Um, and that's very much the framework of what a disaster was, right? A hurricane, a fire, a flood. And we've had hurricanes and fires during the pandemic, but definitely the pandemic has redefined how we think about disaster planning, right? As not just being like a singular uh act of God localized event, but something that can affect everything in the entire world, right? So, so one sure. of the things you didn't touch on there that I'm sure we can get into um, based on some of the coverage that you've done is through the SBA, the different um, resources and outlets for whether it be funding or things like that that have come out. So, you know, there's the CARES Act that resulted in the PPP loans. Um, I think there's the Save Our Stages Act and the American Rescue Plan, which is new. Um, and then there was, I think you mentioned like economic aid to something, something, something. <laughs> And then there's a re restaurant revitalization fund. Um, I know those are all very different and there's a lot of information behind each of them, but I would love for you to just touch on, you know, what your experience has been around those and where they may be standing when we're thinking about, you know, uh, March and April, 2021. 
Right, right. So just like we have changed our perspective on, in how we think about a disaster, right, um, the government has also had to adapt in how they um, offer disaster aid and services. So initially we saw expansion of the existing idle program, which would be the program that initially uh, myself and Rainey worked with, um, which is very much designed to get businesses and individuals back up to where they were pre-disaster. That's the, that's the mission of the, the IDLE program. Um, but of course, never designed to, to be so large and expansive or, or so reactive. And then uh, in addition to IDLE loans, we have PPP loans, which is very much for payroll, right? So that program was designed on retaining employees and then some supplemental funds for rent and utilities. And we see a second round of PPP being offered um, from the legislation that passed in December. But with that legislation, we also saw what initially was called Save Our Stages. And in the final um, iteration, I believe it's called the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. <laughs> um, and that is very much targeted at uh, live venues, performing arts venues, uh, talent representatives, museums, and, 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 and some sort of related uh, cultural venues and who've been hit really hard because they haven't been able to open at all during the pandemic. And that particular one offers 45% uh, of 2019 revenue, which is what a lot of these companies have need because that's a whole yeah. year where they've lost revenue at this point. Um, so there's a lot of interest in that program. And then the most recent legislation that passed <laughs> on the 11th of the month uh, includes the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And the Restaurant Revitalization Fund is unique because that lets you have, um, I think I'm going to check my notes so that I don't, uh, don't get it wrong. Um, up, I think the maximum that to that for that is five million per location, and not to exceed ten million overall. Um, and that's based on uh, twenty nineteen versus uh, twenty twenty. Um, for PPP second round, you have to show twenty five percent reduction in any quarter of twenty nineteen to a corresponding quarter of twenty twenty. For the restaurant revitalization fund, you have to show that you have earned less. It could be one. Uh, side order or one drink less uh, in 2020 than 2019. So it's much more generous. Um, and then for the save, uh, for the SVOG uh, pro grant program, you have to show uh, the amount of loss. So those who have lost uh, between 190% will get first preference. And then once those are, uh, that period has closed 70% or more loss. And then once that period is closed, uh, everyone else can apply. And these, these latest two, uh, the shuttered venue and the restaurant uh, grants, the, they're much more complicated than PPP and IDLE. And so the SBA is having to come up with regulations and requirements on how these programs will be run. So uh, shuttered venues has been, <laughs> it feels funny to say, it's been around for a while since it's been around since December. <laughs> so they have a clearly defined checklist um, which varies upon like which category a museum might have different requirements than a live venue, but we have a pretty clear picture of what they will be required. Uh, the restaurant revitalization fund 
it's the SVA hasn't even created a, a web page for it yet. So we are still waiting to find out. Now, uh, save, uh, save Your Stages requires you to have a DUNS number and a SAMS account um, and all of these things in place, which take a while. It can take like a week or two to get these in place. So people who look at the checklist, put their documents together and get those uh, accounts ready will be uh, at an advantage to be able to apply as soon as the windows open. And for restaurant revitalization fund, we know a DUNS number will be required, but we're still waiting to find out whether Sam's number and will be required or not. And I expect it will be. We don't know what any of the other requirements are yet. <laughs> so big mystery. So like you were saying, this is one of those programs where I will be checking my uh, email and the news and Google searching and having CNN on the background so that as soon as we know something about when the program will start and what they'll need, I can jump on. Oh my goodness. Well, the follow-up question to that is, so if say a, a small restaurant, for example, doesn't have an attorney, they don't have someone that they're already working with, are they, to be able to leverage some of these funds and do the paperwork, are they working with a banker and with an attorney? Um, so it's interesting. So the Idol program, the uh, Shuttered Venue program, and Restaurant uh, program, those are all going to be administered by the Office of Disaster Assistance, SBA, directly, versus the PPP round one and round two have gone through the banks. So uh, when it comes to PPP, we've actually advised clients that if you have a good relationship with your lender and your lender is accepting applications uh, from their from their uh, clients, then you're, you're probably better off working with your lender. But if you don't have a lender, we're helping uh, clients find vendors. And then for those clients, we are trying to help them get through the PPP process because it is complicated and it is changing constantly too. The forms for the forgiveness have changed two or three times already. Um, and the requirements uh, uh, for the forgiveness have also changed both in December and on March 11th. So they're moving targets. You don't have to have an attorney, and I want to make that clear because not everyone can afford to have an attorney. But, uh, you, you know, if you don't have an attorney, it is a lot to keep, keep track of. And some people are doing it through their CPA, and the only word of caution there I would have is just be careful that your CPA isn't giving you legal advice because you're not, they're not really supposed to be doing that. But yeah, it does help to have some expert because it is constantly changing. It is confusing. Yeah. And the reality is you do want someone who has gone through the documentation and the legalities, especially when it comes to reimbursement um, and things like that. We're going to go down the, the rabbit hole a little bit more because what you just touched on is talking about um, some of the underhanded dealings and, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities for people to be taken advantage of in the, the situation that we are today. Um, so along that thread, you previously mentioned to me um, the, the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Relief, um, the SIG, SIGPER, um, SIGPER, um, yeah. and would, you mentioned that that's like a new Inspector General office. So tell us more about what that really is going to be able to, to what's that, what that's going to do for us. Yeah, so that's a lot to unpackage, right? Um, we are following that and they just released their first uh, quarterly report or monthly report. So I'll be sort of picking that apart as well and sending out emails to everybody about 
uh, what to be careful and cautious of. But essentially, each government agency has an inspector general. Um, and because of the CARES Act, I believe it was in August, don't hold me to that, uh, there was legislation passed creating the special inspector general for pandemic relief in relationship to the CARES Act specifically. And their mandate is to uh, investigate and prosecute fraud, waste, and abuse of the pandemic relief programs. So they're going to be looking for things like people um, not, uh, not disclosing properly how many employees they had. So maybe inflating the number of employees so that they got more uh, idle grant funds, or they're gonna be looking at people who included their um, bonuses and executive compensation in their average monthly. They're going to be looking at all of those things for PPP. And um, there, are, there was a lot of fraud in both programs, unfortunately, because there were people who didn't really need pandemic relief, but saw it as an opportunity to get some free government money. Um, we have seen people who made up businesses that fudged the numbers that I was talking about. So this particular government agency, which is just just now getting staffed up and getting off the ground is going to be going back and auditing and looking at these applications, these files, and they are going to be prosecuting civilly and it, where they can prove that it was intentional criminally, uh, people who abused the system. Um, and there's a whistle, you can be a whistleblower if you know somebody who's done it and there's like whistleblower protection. So we're gonna be following that. Right now it looks like uh, their reports focusing a lot on airlines um, and the money that was flagged for airlines, which is interesting. But um, as they staff up, we expect more, more information about that kind of uh, prosecution or fraud cases. Oh my gosh, I'm just imagining now people, you know, three years from now thinking that they just got this amazing infusion of money, took advantage of the system and they get a call three years later and then they've completely forgotten about it and they're like, uh, is this you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's some pretty atrocious stories. I've had people call me and say, my client is trying to take out a bank loan and the bank is saying that we've taken out an SBA loan and uh, we didn't take out an SBA loan. Um, and it turns out one of the other partners took out the SBA loan, took the money and pocketed. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Right, so... They're definitely nightmare, nightmare. So stories. it's not just divorces um, and personal relationships. We've got business relationships that are uh, increasing, you know, being tumultuous. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same uh, dynamic, right? Who, who you're in business with is kind of you're kind of married to them, and they say that financial pressure is one of the leading causes for uh, divorce or disagreement over finances. And definitely, these businesses have been suffering a lot of financial pressure under the pandemic. So, if you've got partners disagreeing about how to how to use funds or how to apply for funds, yeah, it can can uh, erode relationships yeah, quickly. Yeah, uh, even more reason to have it in writing, I'm sure you'd say. <laughs> Make sure those partner, partner agreements are uh, locked up tight. Uh, so there's, yeah, yeah, for sure. there's also fraud 
and you had told me a story that just absolutely shocked me. Um, but you had talked about fraud also from the the lender perspective, or maybe from you know CPAs or different things like that. Um, I, you know, I'd love for you to touch on that because I think it's something that you know when you are really needing an influx of cash in order to keep your baby, your business open, and someone's saying, "Yes, I can get this for you," but then they're including lingo, you know, on the back end or saying that there's these requirements or things like that. Um, that you're not aware of or that you don't know are unusual or illegal, then you're just going to take it, you know, take the opportunity saying, I need the infusion of cash, let's move forward. Talk a little bit about some of those things to be wary of. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, fear-based motivation and and uh, hype around all of these programs. Like one of the things uh, that the media attention has done, which I don't really like, is they put a lot of emphasis on you have to do do this right now, you have to move very quickly, and uh, don't, they don't necessarily take uh, the effort to explain how the programs are different, to explain what the requirements are, and that creates a, a, a situation where a lot of business owners are overwhelmed by all of the legislation, everything constantly changing, and they're afraid, um, you know, and I think we're all a little you know, afraid and stressed out by the pandemic uh, in general. And so there are people who are taking advantage of that by charging exorbitant rates to assist people with pandemic relief. Now, I want to be clear, we charge to, <laughs> to assist people with pandemic relief, but um, there, there's a point at which it becomes uh, what I would say unethical. So we, I had, a, had someone reach out to me saying that they had been charged 30% of their loan. So whatever loan amount they qualified for, 30% was going to go to this person for assisting them with applying for the loan. And so, you know, if you think about it, and, and let's just assume it had been like a $90,000 loan, so $30,000 immediately goes to pay the individual that was supposed to help them, and then they still have to pay back that $30,000 that they paid that individual because it's a loan to the SBA. So it's like they paid $60,000. So if you do all of the math, then it meant they really just got $30,000 and they paid $60,000 to get it. Um, and it, it's, you know, in my opinion, unethical and unconscionable. And there's a lot of fraud going around. There's a lot of people who are proclaiming to be experts. And one thing I'm very careful and conscientious about is when I'm talking to someone who is interested in the shuttered venues or the PPP or the restaurant revitalization fund, anyone that's telling you that they have a lot of experience in it, just that should be a red flag because it didn't exist till March 11th or December. So how can you have a lot of experience in it? I, I'm very forthcoming in that I don't, the particularities of this program, I don't have a lot of experience with it because it's new. Even the people who are, who are administering the program don't have a lot of experience in it. And we do expect it to change, right? They've never had these programs. They don't know how it's going to work. They have to come up with it. They have to build the technology behind it. They do the programming behind it. And then as they collect the documents, they might decide, you know, hey, we were asking everyone for this, but we don't need it. Or we've been asking everyone for this, but we need these additional documents. So the requirements might change. Or based on the number of people who apply for the grant, they might say, we can't 
we can't, we don't have enough money and we want to be able to give as much money, which is what happened with the IDLE program, right? Initially, before the CARES Act, IDLE loans were, you know, could be a million dollars, but post CARES Act, they got so many applications. As far as I know, they've been capped at $150,000, which is a big difference, right? Um, and that's not anyone's fault. That's just adapting to the circumstances. But yes, there's been a lot of fraud um, and, uh, and a lot of people, unfortunately, being taken advantage of. And then, like you said, unethical. I mean, it, like you said, it, it's normal to be charged in order to get help doing these things. That's that's normal. Right. Um, so it's not that you're, you need to be finding someone who's not going to charge you in doing this pro bono. Right. That's going to be that's going to be probably non-existent or uncommon. So it's it's really just a matter of looking at the structure and how they charge you for it. Um, yeah, that's just really awful to hear. You also touched on timeline and the media making it seem like there needs to be this rush. I've definitely seen that, felt it myself. I do think part of it is because it seems like there's been a specific deadline that you had to get paperwork in by a certain yeah. time. However, I'd love for you to touch on what that timeline maybe looks like today. Like, where are we at, you know, in that second round of PPP, for example? Right. So for the second round of PPP, the deadline has just been extended and as part of that March 11th. So it was uh, March 31st, and now I believe it's May 31st. So they've extended the deadline for applications. And then, you know, they're learning. So initially, one of the big complaints about PPP is a lot of the funds went to large companies that should have or did have capital reserves to tide them over. Um, and not enough money went to smaller companies or minority-owned companies or companies in uh, distressed communities. So as, as, with every progressive piece of legislation, we see little tweaks being done to make sure that the money goes out to the people who it's supposed to go out to. So on PPP, we saw a restriction uh, that only businesses of a certain size and businesses who had fewer than a certain number of employees could apply for PPP loans for a certain period, and that's been extended, and that bigger companies have to wait. So they don't get in <laughs> and take up all the money, uh, particularly because that program went through lenders. Initially, what was happening is lenders were calling their big clients and saying, hey, you know, come talk to talk to your account representative. We'll get all of your paperwork done. We'll get you the PPP loan right away. Meanwhile, you know, mom and pop, or, you know, restaurant or shop uh, that has no resources, that doesn't have a, a bank manager or customer account person calling them is filling out this paperwork online and not getting through. And then they're finding out, well, the money ran out, right? Um, the big so, lenders and the big companies are like, money, money. Exactly. Money. I mean, they're seeing it as a great thing. Yeah, right. So so there, there's definitely been the things to put in. Um, as for the shuttered uh, venues, that's going to start taking applications, we've heard, in early April. And again, uh, you know, I would, I would not be surprised if that deadline gets pushed back a little bit. And then on the restaurant revitalization fund, again, we have nothing. We have nothing from the Treasury Department or SBA uh, even telling us what we need, much less saying when they're going to start taking those applications yet. Got it. Okay. 
Perfect. I'm super glad you touched on that. Um, you know, and also the the latest news, I think it was either yesterday or the day before that, is also then taxes deadlines have been pushed out as well. So when I think about um, the IRS, when I think about these government agencies, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to work for them right now. <laughs> Because I just imagine desks, or, or not even desks, because who prints things out anymore? I definitely don't have a printer. I don't know about you. You, you probably have to have a printer. Do you have to have a printer? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think you. I don't think you can be. I, I've heard lawyers saying they're paperless. I don't. I don't know how they're. Doing. <laughs> I'm. I'm still old school. I still need to print something out to really be able to edit it properly. I appreciate a good highlighting. You know, like yeah. a physical highlighting um, opportunity. So yeah. Um, you, you touched on just some really important things there. So I'm glad you touched on that. Um, and like you, taxes being able to be, so May is going to be an important month, if nothing else, because there's going to be multiple deadlines that oh, exist. Oh, yeah. And then all of these programs have certain tax implications as well. So for businesses that have gotten their idle loans and gotten their PPPs, now the next hurdle is going to be making sure that they file their taxes properly and take advantage of um, all of the tax incentives as well that have been passed. Um, and so working with probably a CPA to, to make sure that you're getting the maximum amount um, from your tax return for a small business this year is going to be more important than it has ever been before. So I'm curious about the traditional size of company um, or that you traditionally work with, right? Like, is it, do you work with solopreneurs who have a business that maybe, you know, only um, makes low six figures or, you know, even smaller than that, micro businesses? Or do you work with someone who's probably more in a small to medium sized space that is, you know, 10 million up in revenue? I'm curious if there's just a, a you know, a suite that, where it makes sense for, for you all and the types of clients that you work with. Sure. Uh, most of our uh, clients, well, I, I would say in term in terms of this part of our business, right? Um, we tend we tend to get uh, two clients from two different sectors. One is uh, clients who are startups, um, and so are just in sort of the formation stages of their business. Um, you know, within the first two years, or we get more established business, which are more SME, small to medium sized enterprises who are contacting us because they've had some sort of issue, right? So either there's a partnership dispute or they're looking into getting the SBA funds and they're overwhelmed or uh, somebody is suing them or there's a very complex transactional deal that, um, that they're trying to figure out. So those are kind of the two areas that we tend to get clients from. Um, and then the third would be in this uh, in the phase of uh, planning for the future. So we see some businesses who are now starting to get successful and they're thinking of succession planning. They're thinking of how to um, limit liability for, for themselves. Um, how can they pass maybe the business on to their children? Um, and so I kind of I call that the three D's, death, disability, and divorce, <laughs> that, that, that we want to think about in terms of protecting their liability moving forward or structuring their businesses to minimize tax. So when someone has five, six, 10, 20 LLCs, you know, how do, how do we start to get it so that it's structured in a way that is more streamlined for them to handle? So those are kind of the categories for us that we see businesses in. And then... Um, 
the other sector that we see clients in is nonprofits because there are not a lot of law firms out there that specialize or understand nonprofits. Um, I actually have a nonprofit management certificate and uh, we've worked with a lot of uh, temples, churches, uh, nonprofits in education and a variety of different areas. Um, and that is a very different and distinct area of law than for profits. So I always tell clients, if, if someone tells you that just because they're a business attorney, they know nonprofits, it's not true. They're, they're kind of a completely different ballpark. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, I'm glad you touched on that because I think that's that's absolutely an important aspect. I'm curious, you've been an adjunct professor for, for year, several years now, and so you've obviously had classes come in and, you know, I don't know what class sizes look like today, if it's 20 or 30 students per class, but, you know, what what's a tip or maybe a story that you always are talking about with your students? Um, well, right now I'm teaching uh, dispute resolution, and so... One of the things I like to emphasize, no matter where you are or who you are in life, whether you're running a business or whether you're working for someone um, or whether you're just practicing as an attorney, uh, my personal philosophy is it all comes down to relationships. And you know, you can be great at what you do. Like you can be a subject matter expert. You can know everything there is to know about the law. But if you're not good at relationships and you're not good at understanding uh, people's motivations, you're not going to be an excellent lawyer. You'll still just be a, a, a good lawyer. Um, and so an example I like to give is we've had divorce cases where settling the divorce came down to who got the dogs, right? And being able to settle that case is more about understanding one's emotional attachment to their pets and how that could be difficult for them and and knowing how to talk to someone about that then it is about knowing the law i mean sure dogs are property under the law <laughs> right but it's it's a living being and the person in front of you is a living being who's having an emotional response and i think the difference between a good attorney and an excellent attorney is being able to empathize and talk to people in human terms and build those relationships because at the end of the day everything is relationship based so obviously you need to know your stuff and the more you know your stuff the better of an attorney you are but like if you're a good attorney that can empathize and explain and understand things that what makes you an excellent attorney and an excellent negotiator i the the empathy aspect of it absolutely because i i can imagine in your business con context getting context about relationships or the, you know, the reasons behind why somebody is asking for something in particular to be in writing or demanding something be changed is all about context and historical, <laughs> historical context of what has happened. Oh, absolutely. Or just, you know, we get clients that come in all the time who are like, I want, I want justice or I want, I want the other person to pay for what they've done and you know to, to take a step back and know that the law isn't necessarily about justice right um you know the and and distinguish the law between what is morally right and what is not morally right and i, I like to use the example of like the traffic ticket the speeding ticket right 
everybody knows that the speed limit is whatever it is, 45, right? And everybody is probably driving over 45. And some people are probably driving at 60. But when the police officer pulls you over and you get the ticket for driving over 45, it doesn't matter what other people were doing, right? Is it ethically right that you got caught and nobody else got caught i i mean maybe maybe not but that's not what the law is about oh yeah um i've i've been there done that yeah. um i have <laughs> knock on wood though i haven't gotten a speeding <laughs> ticket in a very long time so um i can appreciate that but i also haven't been on the roads for a year so maybe that <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, well, I'm curious if there's any, you know, on top of that, that story, like you mentioned, so maybe that's the answer to this, but if there's any common mistakes that you're seeing, you know, these startups, these early businesses make when they are coming to you, I, you know, I can imagine a lot of it is just not using legal zoom, um, you know, or some of these other platforms, but what are some other potential common mistakes or myths maybe that you would love for to see go away? Yeah, legal Zoom or Google as your lawyer is a big one, right? Um, we, you, you want to at, at some point in time have a budget for whatever your legal expenses are going to be because I cannot emphasize enough that it is less expensive to do your legal paperwork correctly at at the front end than to pay for the litigation that's going to come when you have. Uh, poorly drafted documents, which people can argue about at the back end, right? Just goes without saying. Um, th that's from a legal perspective of like number one mistake. I see a lot of startups who either don't want to spend any money at all and they just use form contracts and they're for free online and you're, you're reading them and you're like, well, I see that you found yourself a nice uh, New York <laughs> operator agreement, and I'm glad you found that, but this is Texas and the law is different here and all of these references are wrong and now you've just created a confusion. Um, so, you know, it's if you can't afford it, spend the money to do it properly. But the second uh, thing would be insurance. It's a good idea to have insurance. And then the third thing would be this circling back. Everything comes down to personal relationships and risk. As your lawyer, I can minimize your risk, but anything that's worth doing is going to have some amount of risk associated with it. Um, and at that point, it's for the client to determine whether what decisions they want to make for their business. And one of my pet peeves is lawyers who start getting involved in making decisions for the business owner that really aren't legal decisions, right? At the end of the day, it's your business um, and you should make those decisions. I can just advise you on the risk. Okay, those are fantastic tips. I love that. The, the, the three hot spots is, uh, is insurance relationships and getting things started from the beginning. Yeah, then rather than having to band-aid it afterwards yeah. and, and pay those heavy costs for when things may come apart. Um, so there's two questions that I love to ask everybody. So I would love to get into those here in our last few minutes. Um, one of them is, you know, if let's say you're given $5 million tomorrow to go and start a new business, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, related to legal, you know, just entirely separate. What type of project or business, you know, how would you spend the money? What would you put it towards? Um, just from the, 
I, I believe if you're going to start a business, it should be like something you're passionate about because you're going to work harder for yourself. You no, know, just knowing that from Rainy and I starting our law firm, which is a business that we started, um, you're going to work much harder for yourself, uh, and you're going to have to work much harder than you do when you work for someone else, right? So it has to be passion related. Um, and knowing myself and how much I am passionate about and supporting other women in business, probably the business that I would set up would be uh, uh, some sort of VC company or, um, or incubator for women in business because that's something I'm very passionate about and it's a way of giving back to the community. And I believe in that sort of karma of like when you do something positive out there for other people, it comes back to you. So that's what I would do. Well, they would be lucky to have you as uh, an investor and someone who would really champion their their business. So um, I would be applying for your uh, VC firm. I love it. Um, what also, so let's imagine somebody is moving to Dallas or relocating their business here, or maybe they just want to get more plugged in. What is one um, business resource or who is one person that you recommend that everybody know to get plugged in? Well, the two of us, right? <laughs> Obviously, definitely. Start there. <laughs> Everyone should know the two of us. Um, <laughs> after, after that, after we've gotten to know us. Um, I think two overlooked resources are very, very old school resources, and that is libraries and universities. Yes. Yes. She said it. She said it. <laughs> and libraries and universities, I mean, especially your library, it's for free, and it's a gold mine that people don't even realize. So you can go to, and everybody does go to grants.gov to look for grants, Right. But if you're talking about local grants, like for the, the city of Dallas, the county of Dallas, Collin County, Denton County, Carrollton, if you're looking for private grants from private foundations, you know, there, the library here in Dallas, uh, and I think almost most libraries in general, have a grant librarian whose job it is to help you research and look up grants that you might be eligible for, and it's free. You can just call set up a personal one-on-one -on -one appointment and just learn about all these grants that aren't necessarily going to be on grants.gov. So libraries for sure and universities. A lot of universities have, uh, you know, professors that have subject matter uh, expertise in whatever business you're, you're trying to start. They have resources and they have graduate students <laughs> need jobs. I mean, they're just, universities are, are much under underused uh, resources in general. Okay. So I would, I would pick those. Two. Uh, the, there's a grant librarian. You absolutely have blown my mind. I've never once, <laughs> I've never heard of this. Um, that's amazing. I'm so yeah. glad you mentioned that truly. Um, that is very interesting. So, you know, and, and my perspective has always been as much as I love co-working spaces and I've been a member of a co-working space, I've also gone to my Addison library who has this beautiful open area with desks and extra monitors and everything like that, full, you know, floor to ceiling windows. And I'm like, 
wait a second, this is free and this is a, an entire business environment that I could come in and host a meeting at and, you know, as a resource. And so, yeah, I hope our, our funding for, for libraries in particular never goes away. And our universities have obviously been trying to push forward throughout the year, um, I can imagine. But like you mentioned, graduate students and, you know, interns and the, the professors who are there are, you know, generally business experts in and of themselves. So fantastic resources. I'm so glad you mentioned those. What gets you excited about business in 2021? Oh, well, you know, I like to think of the businesses in our communities um, and I'm going to say small businesses in our in our, in our communities um, as kind of being unicorn people. And by that, I mean, they are not just uh, the dreamers and the visionaries and, you know, whatever the Albert Einsteins and Picassos, but they're also doers because you know, we like to, if you're in, if you're in the entrepreneurship community, we like to say that's the difference between an entrepreneur and a wantrepreneur, right? But they're people who actually put the, you know, the blood, the sweat equity into their, into their dreams to make them, uh, to, to make them into reality, right? And those are rare people. They're, they're unicorn people. And they have been somewhat suffering under this uh, very dark times that we're living in right now. Um, but necessity is the motherhood in, of invention. And they've had to be much more creative and much more flexible and much, much more adaptable than they've ever had before. So I can't wait to see what uh, what our small business community is going to do in 2021, as we hopefully see these restrictions fall away, and they're able to sort of spread their wings um, with this experience kind of forging them into stronger, um, tougher, uh, business people. So yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Oh, that gave me goosebumps because it is absolutely true. And you know, I, I honestly, it's so funny that you mentioned doer. I honestly, when I was putting together my business cards a little over a year ago, before the pandemic, I was getting new business cards. And I was like, what is my title? And I was like, doer. <laughs> I was going to put doer as my title because I was just like, you know, I, a lot of people always say like, Brie, I'm not sure what you do, but I just know you do a lot of things. And I'm like, all right, well, I should probably clean that up and hopefully have you, you know, know what I do exactly. But for now, everybody just knows that I do things <laughs> and, and I work hard. But like you said, you know, it has really, this podcast is, is proof of that. I joke about how local and thriving is my COVID baby because I worked on this for nine months, basically, you know, of, of bringing this to life. So, um, you know, what, what excites you about this year also does for me because the, the future of work and what our new normal looks like, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity that, that can come from that. And hopefully people are revitalized with how strong their inner strength and knowing just how strong they are because we've survived this last year. What else can we do? Yeah. I mean, I've heard so many people, uh, you know, echo that, like, if I can just survive through this, then, right? And I'm excited to see what's going to happen for the then, right? So. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that I maybe just don't know about or that you want to touch on, um, you know, in terms of what people need to be doing as they look into, um, you know, April and May, whether that be paperwork to file or just other timely things that are going on right now that we didn't get to touch on? Uh, well, definitely, if you're interested in any of the government incentive programs, you know, we have we have a mailing list. You can reach out and sign up for our mailing list. But 
you know, keep an eye on it because it is an evolving, uh, evolving, moving target. And so the best advice I can give is to to try to stay stay abreast of of all the changes. And particularly, since you said the next few months, tax season is going to be uh, a big deal for, for almost every small business, whether they took advantage of the uh, stimulus programs or they didn't. There are other tax incentives and uh, programs that they can take advantage of. So don't miss out by, by not taking advantage of that. Is that going to be a timeline where being able to um, uh, have them um, uh, forgiven is, is the May timeline where you're going to have to prove the numbers of how you spent the money and different things like that in order to make sure it's forgiven? Yeah, so the forgiveness timeline, I, I'm not sure if that got extended. The last time I checked, it was uh, March 31st. I don't know if that too has been extended. But with those forgiveness timelines and actually with any of these timelines, especially for the lender-based programs like PPP, uh, I advise clients pay attention to what their lender is saying, because let's say the deadline is March 31st. Well, that's the lender's deadline for getting your application into the portal for the SBA. So just them being able to get it into the portal might take, let's say, two or three days because the portal goes up and down and has a backlog. But then the lender has to review and approve all of your document and documentation before they put it in the queue for the portal. So that might take a couple of days or weeks or going back and forth to get the right paperwork. So I don't want anyone to think that the deadline's March 31st, so I can put in my application on the 29th. Um, I would say that you're you're too late at that point. So see, talk to the lender to find out what the actual deadlines are. Perfect. And if you are listening to this, we are recording on March 19th. So uh, when you're listening to this, um, it's either maybe too late or you still have a couple of minutes. <laughs> Or days, I should say. Or maybe, or maybe you're listening to this on March 20th, and everything has changed. <laughs> Congress passed something new, or the Treasury Department issued new guidance, or the SBA came out with a new checklist. So, <laughs> keeping it interesting. That's, keeping that's it interesting. the nature of the living target. <laughs> oh my goodness! So obviously, signing up for a newsletter so people can stay in touch about that. But are there other, like, what other platforms or websites are you recommending right now that? outside of signing up for a newsletter that you're using as your resource? Yeah, I would say the for these programs, for me, and uh, I would definitely advise to anyone else, the end-all and be-all uh, authorities is going to be the Treasury Department and SBA.gov. If it's not on the Treasury Department or SBA.gov, website. I'm not saying it's not good information, but it's maybe not yet been confirmed. Uh, So those are two websites that I like to check uh, daily, pretty much. Um, And then as SIGPER, which is the Special Inspector General of Pandemic Relief, relief starts to get up, uh, that will be another website that I'll be watching to see what best practices they're recommending so I can advise my clients of the things they should be doing so they they don't get into trouble and audited by by SIGPER. So those are definitely the websites to watch. Um, And uh, for Restaurant Revitalization Fund, obviously restaurant organizations, they have been integral in pushing the legislation and they're working with SBA and Treasury Department and the same with uh, Save Our Stages, sorry, the Shuttered Venue Operator Grant. Um, 
those uh, organizations that are in uh, the performing uh, performing arts and movie theater organizations, they've also been pushing that legislation. So they are also organizations to plug into. Perfect. Well, that is a ton of information, depending on what angle you're coming from. I think that provides several different avenues for information, but SBA.gov and your treasury are the the end-all be-all, like you said. So I appreciate you so much. I honestly know that we only scratched the surface and we could probably have three more of these conversations. Um, And like you said, three more conversations and the information might be different in all three of them about the same topic, but it is what it is. Um, so I appreciate you doing all the work that you do, not only for the community, but just being a friend. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. What's something you're taking away from the conversation? We want to hear about it. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, our private Facebook group, or the website is localandthriving.com. If there's someone that we need to have on the show, someone whose voice deserves to be heard and they're a business owner, community builder, or a subject matter expert, please let us know. And if there's someone interested in sponsoring this show, I mean, please do get in touch. (laughs) Our email is localandthriving at gmail.com. Thank you again so much. Let's go be a force for good.